ethics that remain being what I called unilateral virtue and um, healthy assertiveness. Okay? So unilateral virtue, what do I mean by that? Uh, I'd like to quote here uh, the venerable uh, Tenzin Palmo, an English woman who spent, I believe, 12 years on retreat in Tibet in a cave. Um, one of her darkest moments, in a sense, was when she was all alone, late at night, in a storm. I have no idea how many high up, 14,000 feet, 18,000 feet, meditating in a tiny cave when a, a, a big pile of snow that had accumulated up above her in her cave collapsed upon her. And literally, she couldn't get out, right? She was stuck inside it. And then this thought arose in her mind, what did you expect from samsara? In other words, ordinary reality. And in that moment, kaboom, she had a major awakening. So her book, uh, Reflections on a Mountain Lake, is just a great book. I recommend it. Anyway, as she says here, wisdom, you know, in some ways, you know, the highest value in the Buddhist frame, wisdom, is all about understanding the underlying spacious and empty quality of the person and of all experienced phenomena. To attain this quality of deep insight, we must have a mind that is quiet and malleable. We can shape it in good ways. Achieving such a state of mind requires that we first develop the ability to regulate our body and speech so as to cause no conflict. We may need to assert ourselves. She's actually been quite assertive about the role of women in Buddhism, especially in the 21st century. But it's not about going at, being at war with other people, tangled up with other people. How do we regulate ourselves in this way? So I want to talk about the Buddhist relationship virtues and maybe some ways to think about them. So as the Buddha says here, there are those who do not realize that one day we all must die. But those who do realize this settle their quarrels. Now by settling the quarrel, it's just settling the quarrel over here. right? We may again draw that line. We may again complete the divorce. We may again, um, you know, pursue justice in one way or another. We may again, you know, just not talk to that person ever because it doesn't work to talk to that person. Whatever it might be, but we don't need to be quarreling with them in our mind. Uh, you may know this Zen story: uh, two monks who have vows of celibacy that are very, very serious. Uh, two monks are walking down a path, and they see a beautiful princess at the edge of a very muddy river in her gorgeous silk robes trying to figure out what to do. Now, don't ask me how the princess got there all by herself, but go with the story. All right? And the older monk um, says, would you like me to carry you across? She says, please uh, do this. So he carries her across. He sets her down, and then the monks keep walking on the trail. All right? But then meanwhile, the younger monk, he's thinking about this. You know, How, how could he do that? How could he break his vows? How could he hold her in his arms? How could he feel her soft thighs against his elbows? How could he smell that hair? How could he see her beauty? How could he do that? How could he do that? Finally, after a mile or so of this stuff, he bursts out saying, how could you do that? How could you do that? How could you carry her across the stream? The older monk turns to him and says, I set her down on the other side. You've been carrying her ever since. Okay. So it's, we settle the quarrel inside our own mind. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. Okay. He also says here, and you can interpret this in terms of reincarnation. 
You can also interpret this in terms of the death of each moment. He says, whoever takes a stick to, be, to beings desiring ease, when one is looking for ease, emphasizing commonalities, will meet with no ease after death. Whoever doesn't take this stick to beings desiring ease, when one is looking for ease, will meet with ease after death. Okay. He's really talking about the consequences, and he's also pointing out other beings want safety, they want health, they want happiness, and they want ease just as much as we do. Okay. Um, so how do we relate to this? Here's another quote from Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was probably the primary teacher in the Theravadan wing of Western Buddhism, the Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Sylvia Borstein, you know, Joseph Goldstein wing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. A major teacher. Um, and you can, by the way, see pictures of him and his teacher, Ajahn Mun, in the Gratitude Hut, which is right over there. And I personally really like looking at the picture of Ajahn Mun. You know, you can see that, wow, you know, there's, there's, there's some attainment there. Anyway, as Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little happiness. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of happiness. If you let go completely, you'll be completely happy. I just think that's one of those sayings to really keep in mind and to think about how much of our own unhappiness and the unhappiness we create for others comes from, you know, holding on in one way or another. Okay? So, what are the, the primary Buddhist relationship virtues? And um, by the way, I skipped past the Buddha's advice to his son, Rahula. Uh, once, it, as the sutta goes, I'll just say it quickly, Rahula was, you know, he was messing up as a nine or 10 year old boy would, let's say. And the Buddha came and talked to him. Can you imagine that moment for Rahula, my dad, the Buddha? Anyway, the Buddha basically says, I'll summarize this whole long text. You can see it in the slide set. Remember to give me your name and email address if you want the slides and stuff like that. Um, anyway, the Buddha basically says, look, before doing something, ask yourself, will this lead to good or bad? You know? And if it will lead to good, okay, fine. But if it will lead to bad, don't do it. And an act of um, uh, thought, speech, or body, you know, deed. Right? While doing an act. Ask yourself, is this leading to good or bad? If it leads to good, okay. If it leads to bad, stop it. And then after doing the act, ask yourself, did it lead to good or bad? If it led to good, pragmatically defined, you know, happiness and welfare for yourself and often for others, okay. If it led to bad, face up, you know. Minimally, be honest with yourself about it. If appropriate, tell somebody else, maybe even the person that you harmed. Right? That's pretty good advice, you know. Just kind of summed up in a nutshell. All right. So, what are the Buddhist uh, major relationship virtues? The, the ways to be, the do's and the don'ts, kind of bringing it down to earth. Uh, as I said a little earlier, I think of this a little bit as like a pre-flight checklist, you know, kind of how am I doing, what's going on, how's it working? So, we have the five precepts that are expressed in the, as negations. Do not um, kill, do not steal, do not... Uh, Create harms through sexuality, lie, or abuse intoxicants. The intoxicant one gets interpreted in different ways. Some people interpret it as don't use intoxicants whatsoever. Other people interpret it as don't get intoxicated. Thich Nhat Hanh and others can, can have written about these uh, precepts, which are kind of the fundamental do's and don'ts, the training precepts, by the way. They're not framed as sins. 
It's not a moral frame so much as a pragmatic frame. And I actually like the language around this that's typically used. I undertake the training precept to refrain from killing. I undertake the training precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely offered. You know, I undertake the training precept to refrain from harming others through sexuality. So it's a training precept. You know, if we mess up, we take a big breath, we try to learn from it and get back on the horse and keep on going down the trail. Okay? So some people can phrase these in the positive, not just I do not kill, but I support life one way or another. I do not simply um, not steal, but I'm also generous. I contribute to others. I try to grow good things, whether it's in my backyard garden or my children's school or my business or my practice as a therapist or my act as a parent or a mate. Okay, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the precepts. Right? Next one, right livelihood. These are pretty classic. Um, again, think about the Buddha coming up with these 2,500 years ago. Uh, do not trade in weapons, living beings, meat, intoxicants, or poisons. And again, see for yourself, ehi pasiko, what's true for you. And then, getting to right speech. Now we're really bringing it into relationships. Five basic characteristics or conditions, or criteria, pardon me, six criteria for right speech. Five are mandatory. One is desirable, but optional. Okay, what are these criteria? Right speech is speech that is well-intended, beneficial, true, not harsh. This is a very important one about tone. We'll get into some of the detail of that. Not harsh and timely. For sure, those five things. And ideally, wanted. But maybe not always. Okay? So I think this is an internal checklist that's really worth looking at it. Is what I'm saying well intended? Or am I just trying to be right here? Or superior? Or avoid the thumb of your domination? You know, in my own mind. What are my true intentions? Also, is what I'm about to communicate going to help? Is it going to be entertaining and fun? That's okay. There's a place for that. Is it going to add value? Or is it just blah, 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 You know? Uh, gossip, for example, that's really not going to be helpful here. Is it actually true? Am I just swinging out? Always. Never. You know? Or am I using language that is, without getting legalistic about it, is accurate, is fair? You know, a neutral person would go, yep, that's actually true, what you just said there, okay? And tone, really interesting about tone. I think we all kind of know what harsh tone is. And for me, it's the movement from being heated to crossing a line. Now, different cultures draw those lines in different places, right? Different relationships draw them in different places. But we all, I think, have a feeling for when we move out of just simply being fired up about how it is, you know, to, you know, that kind of aggro edge where we've slid into the different tone in our language, our righteousness, the velocity, the intensity of what we're coming across. I've crossed that line. I don't know if there's many people in this room who haven't crossed that line with me. We have a feeling for what that line is. We know when other people cross it, and we can bring that knowing to ourselves, you know, to keep our tone clean. 
right? And then, of course, is it timely? Are we just ambushing them? You know, they're falling asleep. Um, and, no, no i got to talk to you right now. Like, well, maybe you really, really do, but if it becomes like a new rule around here, you know, uh, maybe that's not so useful, okay? Um, and I think just factually it's kind of beholden on the person who calls time out to be willing to say when we can get back into interaction about this. That's a personal opinion, right? And then, you know, last, is it actually wanted by the other person? And sometimes we've got to say what we feel is really true, and it may not actually be wanted. Okay. So, and then uh, I think the core here is around non-harming. We don't want to harm other people. And if you want to raise a really high bar, this is a kind of a well-known sutta in Buddhism. I'll summarize it, basically. That is about a very high bar. As the story goes, some monks went out on alms rounds to get food. Um, and they came back and they told the Buddha, hey, those people in the village called us names. Right? They were mean to us. They yelled at us. They said we were stupid or something, you know, whatever. And the Buddha basically says to him here, look, no matter what other people do, sustain your good wishes for them. Right. I, I might add myself, it's not in the sutta, you might need to walk away. You might choose not to go back to that village. You might internally have a discerning thought about who they are. right? But you don't need to stop radiating loving kindness in all directions. And the Buddha is very firm here, as you can see. He says one who stops sending, sending loving kindness is not practicing the way that I teach. And then he goes all the way down to the bottom, the famous paragraph at the bottom, right? Uh, Even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, you know, two men, one on either side. And you love the kind of graphics of this rural agrarian, you know, background here. Uh, Even if bandits were to sever you savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, anyone giving rise to a mind of hate would not be carrying out my teaching, would not be practicing the way that I teach. I mean, that's incredible. Um, And yet, there are people who can do that. And I figure if they can do that, you know, when our teenage kid gives us the look, you know the look, ready, one, two, three? (laughs) You know, if if the Buddha says, even if someone's cutting your arm off with a two-handled saw, do not fall into the mind of hate, you know, I can rise in my response, hopefully, especially after the first few seconds, you know, when I kind of gather my wits about me, to that, that, that action of the other kid. Um, it was a true story. Uh, a monk held in, uh, I want to make a distinction here between the Chinese people and the Chinese government, you know, a, a Tibetan monk held in a Chinese government jail, tortured, mistreated, beaten, starved, terrible things, terrible, terrible things, finally got out made his way to northern India where the Buddha, where the, where the Dalai Lama lives and was telling the Dalai Lama what had happened to him, just kind of matter-of-factly. The Dalai Lama, true story, was shocked and, of course, very moved. And at one point, to this monk uh, who had been starved, beaten, etc., etc., he said at one point, did you not fear for your life? And the monk paused and said, the only time I feared for my life was when I thought I might be losing my loving kindness. 
that's how he defined his true life. Not the life of the body, but the life of the mind, where he did not want to let any kind of hatred or ill will for the people who were tormenting him, in the language of the Buddha, invade his mind and remain. Things might arise. Things do arise. But do they invade the inner sanctum and remain? That's the key distinction. You know? And that's manageable. That's doable. Right? Stuff's going to come up for us, the side of full enlightenment. Right? But does it invade the mind and remain? Do we get into it? Do we start fueling those fires? Right? We're always feel, fueling one fire or another. Right? The wolf of love or the wolf of hate. Do we keep fueling that fire of anger, vengeance, payback, recrimination, and grievance? That's on us. That's on us. Right? Which goes to, for me, and I'll just say this, then I'll want to hear what you think about all this, and then we'll take a break. Trust me, we will take a break. But anyway, um, since it's on us, you know, another thing about Ajahn Chah's story he told that his this has been in my mind a lot ever since I read it. In a rural Thai you know, forest uh, environment with farmers and generally ordinary people, he said, you know, if you want to get fruit, you can go and get a good little apple tree, a little sapling, right? And you can put it in the ground and you can dig a good hole and you can fertilize it and plant it well. Then you can water it and you can pick the bugs off, and you can protect it, prune it carefully over the years. You can do those things, but you cannot make it give you an apple. You can tend to the causes, but you cannot control the results. Isn't that a deep teaching for our relationships? We can do what we can on our side of the street, but we cannot make them love us. We cannot make them be faithful. We can't make them you know, talk to us a certain way. We can do what we can to influence that. There's a place for that. You know? I think that there's this kind of odd notion that we can't influence other people or shouldn't. We're continually influenced by them, right? Much as they, we are influenced by them, they are influenced by us for better or worse. The question is, are we, do we have wholesome ends you know, uh, achieved through wholesome means? without a clinging or attachment to the result, right? We're going to influence them. We're going to do what we can. But after that, 10,000 causes, you know? So for me, this teaching from Ajahn Chah, tending to the causes without being attached to the results, is both, for me, wonderfully freeing and peaceful. Like, wow, I can kind of get my mind out of the results and focus on tending to the causes, recognizing that it's a really big picture and I can only take care of one small part of it. And in addition to peacefulness, it brings one to a sense of responsibility. It's on me to tend to the causes. Can I treat this other person well? Can I take maximum personal reasonable responsibility for their grievances with me, their complaints, and gradually zero them out one by one? Can I manage my own tone? Can I manage my own impulses, right? Can I exercise right speech? Can I... Um, not be evil, as they say at Google, right? Uh, that's on me to do. Which then goes to this idea of unilateral virtue. You know, I'm couples counselor, among other things, and uh, often you'll see couples coming in with grievances about each other, right? 
and they basically have a list for each other. And they say to each other, you know, I want you to do X. And the other person says, well, I'll do X if you do Y. And then the other person says, well, you first. And, you know, <coughs> deadlock. And I've been there, you know, in my own relationship. And you realize that actually I, there I have what I think of as the 80-20 rule, uh, where you think maybe 20% about how to get the other person to be a better fill-in-the-blank, you know, student, friend, mate, lover, what have you parent-in-law, but after that, and whatever that number is, I'm not sure it's exactly 20%, maybe it's actually 10%, after that, try to be a better parent, mate, lover, teacher, what have you, oneself. You know, focus over here. The benefits of unilateral virtue is that it puts us at cause rather than effect. We're not waiting for them. It gives us a sense of agency, which is very good, including, including in helping to undo a sense of learned helplessness which is a major factor in depression. Another thing about unilateral virtue is that it feels good. The bliss of blamelessness. You know, kind of paraphrasing another quote from the Buddha, says, of all the smells, of all the, of all the odors, uh, sandalwood, incense, and myrrh, these like expensive, really great smells, of all the fragrances, the smell of virtue is the most beautiful. You know, our own personal virtue. It feels good to be good. And then last, or next to last, it's our best odd strategy to elicit good behavior from the other person right, over time. And last, it also puts us on the moral high ground. After a while, if for a day, a week, a month, a couple months, you've been unilaterally really virtuous with that other person, it puts you in a very strong place to say, you know, I really have X, Y, Z. You know, I really have not done those things, or I really have done these things, and you know, I really wish you would fill in the blank. Okay, that's the basic idea of unilateral virtue. It doesn't mean that we waive our rights. It doesn't mean that we're a doormat. You know, we reserve the right to shrink the relationship to the size that feels safe to the extent that we can, let's say. But still, on our side of the street, we tend to our own causes. Okay. That's that chunk. What do you think about that? And can you think about some situations where this could be challenging that you might want to talk about now? So we get our mic runner again. Anybody want to comment or share? Then we'll take a break, and then I'll come back and I'll talk about the nitty-gritty of assertiveness. But before we go further, any comments or questions? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.